Not long ago, I had coffee with a nonprofit funder. He was excited to tell me that this organization was merging with another organization in the sector. The other organization was also founder-led, so I imagined this was going to be a pretty gnarly one to negotiate. He dismissed a few of my devil's advocate questions, moving with real enthusiasm about the whole being greater than the sum of its parts. But he stopped at one point and he said to me, why are there not more nonprofit mergers? I was quick to answer. I believe it's because they're insufficient models for success. I offered a friendly amendment. Models of success maybe are just not visible enough so that we can all see what they look like, what the components are, and what the challenges and obstacles might be. So the hunt began for an expert who could speak to this topic. What is a merger? When does it make sense? What are the core ingredients of success? Can we share how a successful one is working and how an unsuccessful one might look so we can diagnose? Turns out I was two degrees of separation from just the person to help with this question. She works with a Philly-based pooled fund of philanthropic partners that supports mergers and other types of long-term strategic alliances and restructuring opportunities. Great credentials for this conversation, don't you think? I learned so much in a, just a 20-minute pre-interview, and I'm delighted to be sharing her wisdom with you today. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Nadja Shmavonian is the director of the Nonprofit Repositioning Fund and a partner of Seat Change Capital Partners. Now, I'm going to let her talk through what these two organizations are about and her role with each, but just know that Nadja's career has been an impressive one. As the VP of Strategy at the Rockefeller Fund, an EVP at Pew Charitable Trust, where she oversaw admin and was a program officer in Health and Human Services, she is what I refer to as a serial board member. She's been on lots of them. And she also teaches nonprofit governance to grad students at the University of Pennsylvania. Nadja, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Joan. So first off, would you do the honors? Tell us about this thing called the Nonprofit Repositioning Fund, Sea Change Capital Partners, and your role with each. Well, the Nonprofit Repositioning Fund was established in 2005, late 2015 to support long-term strategic alliances and collaborations that build organizational sustainability and help improve program and service delivery in the greater Philadelphia uh, five-county region. And as you said, and very importantly, the fund itself represents a collaboration in that uh, when it was established, we had eight local funders and one national foundation, the Lodestar Foundation, which has done more work to advance nonprofit collaboration than any other funder in the country. Uh, and these funders came together to, in response to proposals, inquiries, shifting sands in the nonprofit region, nonprofit community here, to look at how they could better facilitate easy, confidentially held and wise counsel to nonprofits contemplating uh, merger or other form of collaboration. Our overarching objective is to normalize the consideration of strategic collaboration for nonprofit leaders, boards, and funders. As one of, one of my colleagues at Sea Change, John McIntosh, refers to it, how to decriminalize that consideration. And Sea Change is a nonprofit merchant bank that primarily services New York City nonprofits through credit funds, advisory services, and two collaboration funds. And it's the latter that has led me to see change. I just joined uh, in 2018, and actually, interestingly, even my uh, affiliation with Sea Change has been its own learning in terms of uh, an alliance and partnership and all that goes into that. Uh, but our fund was modeled after probably the long, one of the longest standing funds like this. Uh, it's the New York City Merger Acquisition Collaboration Fund, which is run out of Sea Change and obviously serves the New York area. But they also, since 2009, have been working with the Lodestar Foundation, managing a fund called the Sea Change Lodestar Fund, which has awarded hundreds of grants across the nation for nonprofit collaboration uh, efforts. So the alliance uh, for the fund and sea change was a natural one. And in the other half of my life, about half my life is spent on the repositioning fund. 
I am working with my colleagues at Sea Change, as well as in several other cities, Los Angeles, Chicago, Dallas, Pittsburgh, to advance the field of nonprofit collaboration. In each of those cities, there are similar pooled funding collaboratives, and we're working together to try to advance research and practice so this work can spread more readily to other communities across the country. What's interesting about what you're saying, Nadja, is that there are a lot of people playing in this sandbox of trying to support, promote, uh, scaffold folks, get them to be thinking about the right things as it relates to strategic alliances and mergers. Um, And I feel like there may be less... So I'm just curious of what you think. It seems like there may be less awareness of these resources. I feel like a lot of nonprofits attempt to do these things and they don't reach out to resources. Do you think that that's because they think they can do them alone? Or do you think that there's not a sufficient awareness that there are so many people that are really out there ready to be of support? Well, if, you know, on the one hand, Yes, there are several of these efforts, but I'm talking about six cities. There may be a few, uh, six communities. There may be a few others that are percolating uh, around the country. But if you're in Peoria and you're contemplating a nonprofit merger, I don't know that, um, one, there are those resources. Uh, It's not just the funding resources. It's also the technical assistance providers that have experience with enough of these transactions that they can be helpful to nonprofits um, looking at their various options. So it's, uh, our interest is, um, you know, I always say we're pretty messed, all of us, the managers of these initiatives around the country that I've cited, we're all pretty messianic about how vital this is and how much it has meant to our communities, but that doesn't mean that they exist uh, around the world. And the other is of course, what I mentioned earlier, which is, a perceived stigma, perhaps, among nonprofit leaders and or their boards that if they talk about it or start, you know, sticking their nose up to look for help, people may judge them poorly or think that they're weak. Um, and I think that has been a uh, that that is one of the that is what we are trying to destigmatize through our work. Smart, smart. So clearly this topic of nonprofit mergers and strategic alliances is one, I mean, you use the word messianic, which I kind of like. What ignited the interest for you? Did any of it stem from your days in the trenches as a program officer at Pew? I'm just kind of interested what ignited you to be messianic about this. Uh, interesting. Well, so the, yes, my first interest in this was at Pew. I was at that time, I believe, still a program officer and working in health and human services in 1990, 1991, when there was uh, one of those great American recessions, I became very concerned about the potential for service deserts in our region, that nonprofits Mm -hmm. weren't going to survive and services wouldn't be delivered, and was looking for some greater um, interest in uh, the, the funders in the community coming together to think more strategically about how to support strong organizations. Uh, At that time, I think uh, the the reaction was met with almost uniform response from funders, which is we don't want to play God. And um, a real hesitation to get into the middle of in any way signaling to nonprofits that maybe they should consider formal collaboration, or even, God forbid, merger or acquisition. (laughs) So that was the first part. The other piece that I neglected to share in my introduction is that my last official job before getting engaged in this work was running a national nonprofit called Public Private Ventures, which was a storied research uh, and evaluation organization focused on uh, youth development agencies and that it had been in existence for over 35 years, I had the unhappy distinction of being the president who, after 35 plus years, entered into what I like to call a responsible dissolution process of that organization for reasons we won't go into. But that experience was um, certainly the, the singularly most difficult experience in my professional life. But I also think it was a very important one, and it sensitized me to the range of options and considerations 
that nonprofits need to go through. And had we five to eight years earlier, perhaps engaged mm-hmm. in a merger uh, with mm-hmm. a, another organization, I think we might have been better positioned to um, survive the recession of 2008, 2009 with some strength. Um, that makes a lot of sense. So to clarify all of the background you do in Philly and with Sea Change Capital Partners, am I right that your role is to advise organizations who are considering mergers and alliances, or do you actually find synergies and go out and actually initiate conversations and resources when it appears that the opportunities might actually be there? On the latter, I absolutely do not go out and initiate. I make myself available. And I think, Joan, one of the important elements of this model is that I am there as a confidential resource. So I do a whole lot of speaking in the five counties. I try to get the word out that we exist, everything I can think of um, to get people comfortable talking about these issues. But I wait for the phone to ring. And when the phone rings, um, I am not the formal advisor. I don't provide, quote, technical assistance. But at this Mm -hmm. point, having made 27 grants now over the last couple of years, uh, having seen lots of transactions uh, of different shapes, sizes, and forms, I'm able to listen to people first and foremost and to hear where they are in their readiness and to give them some advice about what would be needed if they wanted to come back into the fund and submit a proposal for grant support. And that's what we do. Um, I am the the intermediary between the funders and the nonprofits. And again, I, I, repain, I, I retain total neutrality. Uh, I refer to myself as Geneva. Like I don't tell people they should <laughs> merge. I don't care who, who that is necessarily, but I look at the merits of a potential transaction and I put it through the rigor and the process, and I hold it confidentially until and unless they are willing to submit a proposal. At that point, my funders, again, confidentially, learn what that transaction is. But for that, sometimes over a year uh, that it's in process, I keep their information quietly, I have my notes, and I can pull it out when and if they're ready to move forward. I think that you should just start referring to yourself as Geneva, kind of like Madonna. And I think it, it's actually a lot easier to pronounce than Nadja Shmovonian. You just did it for the second time, Joan. I think it's going very well. Thank you. I'm, you, know, I, you know, I learned from the nuns that if you use a word in a sentence once, it's yours forever. That's good. Um, you know, it's important to learn a few things from the nuns. My handwriting is also impeccable. I would like to just. Add. I envy that without having seen it. I know about it. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to ask, what's the typical, is there a typical, so the phone rings and Geneva picks up the phone. Mm-hmm. Is there a typical um, set of circumstances or is it wide ranging? I guess I just want to know, they pick up the phone and they get the Geneva hotline and what kinds of questions do they ask? Well, first of all, uh, I, I probably didn't do enough to emphasize we've been talking mergers and acquisitions, but people call. So it is, there is not a single call. Um, People call with all kinds of inquiries. Sometimes it's two agencies that right away want to get on the phone with me because they've already gone 90% of the way. They know they want to dance together, but they want to understand how we can help them get over the the finish, the, the starting line or the finish line, however you want to look at it. But the other thing that I should have mentioned is that our support goes to a whole continuum of what I call big C formal collaboration, which is anything from shared management um, services Mm, uh, to programmatic joint ventures through to mergers and acquisitions. And as you can imagine, given my background, I would not accept this position without an openness from my funders to engage in uh, dissolution support in very select instances, which is, of course, the opposite of collaboration, but it's also on the sort of nonprofit life cycle. I think yep. an important one to consider. So people will call. Sometimes I get calls um, where people are saying, Do you know anyone we could merge with? We're an out of school time program. 
this, this, that, and the other thing is happening. We would love to find someone we could partner with. Sometimes mm. those calls under are under a pretty hefty degree of duress, as you can imagine, folks who are looking into not making payroll in a very short order. And um, those are not typically good good instances for, for this kind of transaction, but certainly I get those calls. So a lot of what I do is listen and um, frankly empathize and give whatever counsel and advice I can. Uh, other times it's people who are saying, well, you know, what kind of form should this take? And I don't pass judgment on that. I, I give mm-hmm. them sort of the range and array of uh, opportunities that may exist. And uh, often it's just questions of how ready do we need to be before we come in to see you? Um, and so that's that's how that starts. And then before we will do anything, I will need a, a phone call with uh, the two or more parties that are involved to really take them through a conversation about where they are, why they're doing this, um, and uh, how, how we might be of help to them. So uh, can you articulate for our listeners the circumstances that seem, when you field one of these calls and you talk to the key players, the circumstances you see as, yes, this, the, these two organizations are ripe to merge. What does that look like? What does ripe to merge look like? Uh, well, and it's not just, again, and not just merger, but ripe to engage in some kind of change in their business model and long-term formal collaboration. But I think there, let's talk about conditions uh, that lead to a lot of these calls, which I think are also interesting for folks to, to take note of in case you're sitting on a nonprofit board and want to know if these might be moments to really, in those boardrooms, engage in a different strategic conversation. But, are these these um, these things that you see at the bottom of um, pharmaceutical commercials? If you're experiencing these conditions, exactly. See your doctor immediately. Here you are. Okay, yeah. If, All right. If, if if your leader just announced he or she is leaving, please yep. accept. Please call your doctor. Please call Geneva. Uh, but leadership <laughs> transitions, um, regulatory changes in a given field and or uh, a loss of a significant funder or funders. Those three elements are more often than not, sometimes all three uh, involved in the calls that we get in the, in the transactions. But I think leadership transition more than anything, and I, I will just pause because I know you have a, a lot of for-profit background, Joan, but yep. uh, the, the one big difference between nonprofits uh, and for profits, if, particularly if you're contemplating a merger, is there is there well, there's not much work in capital, but there are also no golden parachutes, right? So, correct. Um, it, 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 for good reason, and it's human condition, folks are not necessarily going to always be eager to to give up their seat uh, in a potential transaction, and not that. And I don't. I think nonprofit leaders are the most selfless folks in the world, but it's life. And often if it's a founder, someone is engaged, they're not going to want to just step aside um, without significant uh, motivation. So that's uh, when, so when there, I tell boards all the time, when there is a leadership transition that's planned, take a pause in your boardroom and, ref- and particularly if it's been a longstanding leader, whatever, take a pause and think about, okay, is the next step to immediately launch a search uh, or is is there someone that you've been <clears throat> partnering with slash competing with for years that right. this might be the moment to think about, uh, is there a natural way that we might work with them differently, uh, either, uh, e- you know, either in a temporary basis or certainly to explore uh, a more formal uh, collaboration? Yeah, I do think that um, leadership transitions, which are without a without a doubt the single most tumultuous period of time in a nonprofit, and, uh, and I assume you are seeing this as well. We're seeing this just exodus of baby boomers who are retiring, having been at the helm of organizations for a long time. So one of the reasons I really wanted to talk with you is because I do believe that boards need to be starting to think about this, if it, especially 
if they are part of this trend of the person who's been at the helm for, they may not be the founder, but they might have been there for 20 years and they're retiring. Mm-hmm. And it presents all kinds of different stressors for a board. And the, I think the knee-jerk reaction is, how do we find some qu- someone quickly yeah. rather than, okay, what is it that this tells us about, you know, let's take stock of our organization where it is and let's let's explore five different paths. One of include one of them includes let's move like hell to fill the job, right? No, that's right. And I and I I think there are a couple considerations. And those instances, and this is long before I was involved in this work, I've always felt that boards, particularly with the charismatic leader who's been there forever or founded the place and they they're leaving. I really, and I know there's a ton of money to be made uh, by consultants who are interested in nothing but interim management, right? So I recommend that you bring in an interim leader who has no interest whatsoever in that job, but who will look under the hood and tell the board what they don't know. Um, I think you get into very comfortable patterns with um, successful leaders and sometimes just a fresh set of eyes to come in and contemporize an organization 20 years after that founder or leader was uh, hired to kind of refresh and say, okay, that all was fabulous, but this is what's coming down the pike. And these are some of the different strategies being used now. And also to take that time, not just to learn about what, what's going on and how competitive the organization is, but to use that time, as you say, Joan, to look at a whole range of scenarios, including potential collaboration, including, all right, what should the job description be for this next person? Because it may look very different than the person that we've all come to know and love and see the organization almost synonymously with. So it's a really important pause moment. And for organizations that have the wherewithal and the uh, anticipation, it's a, a great opportunity to really take just a brief timeout um, and certainly keep the, keep the trains running, but, but, you know, find able leadership, find able interim management, but um, don't just rush to fill the void. Najee, I, th- I think you're also making a really important point about interim leadership that, um, that I hope people were really listening to, that it's not just simply about keeping the trains running on time. It's about the under-the-hood investigation. It's about helping the board understand the current shape of the organization and condition the threats, the strengths, the weaknesses as an objective person and someone who can also actually facilitate some conversation with the board on this very topic. And I I believe that far too often board members just say, let's get somebody in here to just maintain the status quo. And that's a missed opportunity and, frankly, not the best use of their resources as an interim management. We often find ourselves when we're doing strategy work, if there's a, there's a void in the development department, somebody from my team will come in and do a development assessment that can be handed to a new development director so that they... Clearly, they'll make their own mark, but it also provides them with an objective assessment of what's working and what needs to be different. And I do believe that that's an opportunity that far too few um, nonprofits take advantage of. Well, let's, so let's. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just going to. No, say one one yeah, one thing to always remember when we're talking about nonprofit boards, Joan, is that in the vast majority of cases, these are volunteer boards. So you know they come together four or five times a year, they serve on their committees. But reality is that to contemplate and to dive deeply like that, you know, what does that take? It takes a lot of time. And it, it totally it, does. But in some ways, I, I would argue it's the most exhilarating work that a board does. And it brings them together in a way that will make them a strong board for a new leader. I agree. Um, so we're 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 all spe- singing from the we're, we're singing the same song sheet. Okay. Yeah. So um, I find that folks say merger mm-hmm. when they really mean acquisition. Mm-hmm. I came from corporate America, and I'm very clear about the distinction. But I'm not always sure that nonprofit leaders are. Um, talk a little bit about the distinction between a merger and an acquisition and um, and how you make those distinctions for the folks who call the Geneva hotline. Yeah, well, and I, I think, well, the first thing I would say is make sure you have a good nonprofit 
attorney counseling you um, because there are a range of ways this takes shape. But I think it's um, it's not as simple uh, as the for-profit world in the sense that I think the nonprofit community, um, a merger typically means a nonprofit taking control of the assets of another. And sometimes that's done through a traditional statutory merger where one merges into another and then dissolves. And in these cases, the assets are truly acquired by the organization that survives the merger. Um, More often, though, a merger is done through a changed control structure where one uh, agency becomes the sole member of another with reserve powers. In this case, the one, the parent, controls the other, the subsidiary, but the assets aren't acquired um, and they stay in the subsidiary, which is now simply controlled by its parent. So for legal reasons, accounting purposes, it, it can look different. Uh, and it really is important to drill down and unpack the terms you use. And I am not a lawyer, but one of the things that we we certainly see in just about every deal we engage in, including uh, we make two types of grants. One is due diligence exploratory grants, which is you know, do you really want to get married to this organization, whatever form you're contemplating? And a second kind of grant, which is implementation grants, which allow for support of one-time costs associated with said transaction should they move across the transom and both boards or more boards have resolutions approving that transaction. In both types of work, both types of grants, we see lots of access to legal support and legal um, services because the nuance and the shape and form of the actual collaboration, it may not, particularly through the due diligence phase, folks may enter through one door and then find that what is feasible looks somewhat different structurally. And that's where really good, experienced um, nonprofit legal counsel can be invaluable. Interesting. So you did a really lovely job of the circumstances or the conditions that lead to some discussion like this, a leadership change, regulatory change, loss of significant funders. Can you be quite so, um, offer the same kind of clarity about the elements of a successful alliance merger, acquisition, collaboration? What's the recipe for success? Well, again, there is no one size that fits all, but I would say some common elements um, is a a shared sense of purpose and a shared view of how the potential transaction will advance the respective missions of the agencies involved, regardless of what happens to the organizational boundaries and structures of those organizations. The second is that there really ought to be organizational strength on at least one side of the deal. Uh, We are, I find myself sadly saying more often than not that two weak organizations do not make one strong. So there needs to be some, you know, three feet on the ground at at least one side of of this, um, this, this relationship. Makes sense. Uh, And then uh, another important uh, consideration that that makes a big difference, I think, in su- success is a, a deep commitment from board and executive leadership. Again, one cannot overstate how much time and emotional energy goes into these deals. And another that is vital, and this is where probably the emotional energy gets drained potentially the most and requires a real strong, that that clarity of vision and why it's all worth it needs to be held to overcome that, is a willingness to respect and attend to the cultural integration that needs to happen with both deep patience and process. Yeah, that's a good one. And that's, that's at both the board and one. staff level, right? Like it's not yeah. like these issues are just staff issues because believe me, we've we, there are many instances we've got two board. One of the obstacles is you've got to a potential merger. Often the executive leadership understands more viscerally than board members why they need to do this because yeah. they're living day in, day out and understand what the pressures are. But sometimes board leaders uh, may even just be the chair of the audit committee, 
doesn't necessarily want to contemplate giving up his or her seat. And um, so just thinking about, and then the values, the way people talk, the processes, there's a lot that needs to be addressed and considered as you move forward. I went to a conference at one point, I think I was speaking, and there was a panel that preceded me uh, that was about successful mergers. And this one merger was held up as a bit of a model of success. And I went home and I looked at the I don't know, I looked at the websites for each of these organizations and and read about their history and kind of got a feel for who was involved in each of these different kinds of organizations. And I thought to myself, the cultures at these two organizations are not diametrically opposed, but um, so different, so radically different mm-hmm. that I wondered how they were managing that and how they were attending to the change management inside the organization once the merger was complete. And I I assume that's what you're talking about, at least one of the things you're talking about as it relates to culture. Yes, it is. And, And we actually, we monitor any, if there is a formal transaction, we monitor those grants for a full two years. And honestly, we don't have many that have come out the other side of that since we're only a little over two years old ourselves. But we believe it's at least two years before you can kind of the dust settles and you can get a sense of, well, well, there may have been some efficiency targets, there may have been some programmatic changes, but certainly the cultural integration, we believe at, at the board and staff level, can take a, at least a full two years, if not longer. So it really, yeah. it's a very, and I will, I will say one of the other recipes in these um, deals that's important is the quality of the technical assistance providers, as you say, who guide you through that. There's the, the facilitated nuance of walking into that boardroom and looking at every, everyone and you know eyeballing everyone on both sides and trying to imagine and talk about how do you come together as one culture. And again, particularly the nonprofit world, everything's about mission, right? And so the values and mission of your organization are the religion. There's not a bottom line drive in the same way. So how you, and I think that's one of the things that keeps me awed by this work is even knowing that, and even knowing that's really the the incentive for so many leaders and staff to work in nonprofits, because it, it sure ain't the, the compensation and and all the perks that go with it. It's the work and the belief in it, and and the the deep belief in the culture and values of your organization. And when you start talking about merging and blending organizational boundaries, because ultimately you care about those end beneficiaries in your community of service so deeply that you will kind of take one for the team and risk um, in some ways, if nothing else, diluting some of those values and having to go through the work of finding new shared purpose. I find that it is also true that you find organizations that perhaps are older, um, maybe they're serving the same basic societal need in their community, but they feel like they are not potentially engaging youth or that there's a, you know, that there's or, or people of color in the right, in the right sort of way. And they feel that merging their organizations will make the two of them stronger when in fact the cultures of these organizations are crazy different. And because, and <laughs> I often find that the cultures are crazy different and that's actually what leads them to want to merge is because they want yeah. to meld those things together so that they can serve a more diverse population or different kinds of clients. And it is that very interest and motivation that can cause trouble in the day-to-day office environment when the people and the cultures are so radically different. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, that's why, again, I believe pretty powerfully in this very simple model that we and the other communities have adopted, which is this exploratory phase um, before folks step into a formal transaction. And I believe that in some ways, just as much, uh, I think it's just as valuable that we help people nail down the issues they're going to have to consider if and how they proceed with their um, deal. But I also think as a prophylactic, we're sort of serving an important role because if you start going down that path, 
if you didn't have the luxury of what what frankly are small resources but dedicated mm-hmm. resources toward facilitation and some of the, the due diligence questions, but particularly around this cultural piece, if you didn't have some guided facilitation in some instances, you wouldn't find out that you really are not, you know, you're, you know, you're Jewish, you're Catholic, and you're really not sure yet, can you raise the kid in a way that they're both going <laughs> uh-huh. to agree? And if you don't go through a process that gets you to that, you know, it's that premarital counseling uh, process, yep. You might just jump into it and then find out you've got irreconcilable differences. And guess what? You've already done some tremendously hefty lifting before you get there. And undoing those deals is way complicated. No kidding. So we are talking to Nadja Shmovonian, who's the director of the Nonprofit Repositioning Fund and a partner of Sea Change Capital Partners. And um, most importantly, what you need to know about her is that she is at the forefront of looking at how organizations can work together collaboratively through mergers, acquisitions, strategic alliances, and has been offering us some really good thoughtful ways of thinking about this. And I want to ask just a couple of more questions that I think will really help. We've been talking about this, obviously, not so abstractly, but So, Nadja, let's bring this to life for our listeners. Can you walk us through a strategic alliance, a collaboration, a merger that that you see as one that could really has the recipe for terrific success? I know you haven't been around a long time, and therefore it doesn't get the, you know, the, the seal of approval from you yet. But what are you seeing that's making you feel really good about its, um, prospects for success. I have an interesting example for you, Joan. It it may not be exactly what you're looking for, uh, because as you rightly pointed out, we have not been in business long enough to have many examples, actually only one, of organizations that have come out of the two-year shoot, and we can evaluate and assess how they've done. But uh, there was a, a grant we made about a year ago to a large human services agency, Maternity Care Coalition, uh, which merged or actually acquired a smaller grant group, Child, Home, and Community. Uh, And as far as we can tell, all has gone well with that to date. The reports have been strong. um, And they came into this, the smaller agency, which was about a $600,000 agency, was looking for a stronger infrastructure and platform from which to deliver its services. Uh, And they found that in Maternity Care Coalition. And the Maternity Care Coalition was looking for greater uh, geographic expansion, as well as a a new demographic reach into younger uh, teen and young adult parents and families. So they were, there's a synergy in what they've done, and it does, as I said, look like it's going well. It's an opportunity to sustain the important work of a small agency that was stretched and struggling to find a way to be as efficient and strong as it could be, uh, and certainly uh, allowed uh, a, an already strong, uh, large organization, about $10 million organization, to expand and extend into some new areas. What's interesting about this one is that the same agency, Maternity Care Coalition, had been my very first grantee in December 2015. They came to us with a very different um, collaboration proposed with another small agency I was very excited about it. My board was very excited about it because there was a tremendous complementarity of programs and purpose. It felt like it was a hand-in-glove kind of arrangement. We were um, very supportive of it. And uh, the grant went out, and about three or four months later, I got a call from the executive director saying that the deal was off. They found that the cultures were just not mixing uh, well and that they, um, there were also differences of opinion in terms of what kind of transaction would be most appropriate, and some cold feet about acquisition from the smaller agency. 
So I, of course, panicked, called my national funder, Lois Savage, president of Lodestar Foundation, because I knew she would um, have had experience with these kinds of situations. And I was kind of freaked because it was our very first grant and it didn't go beyond kind of the starting gate. And she said, it's not a failure. Um, They will be stronger for having gone through this process and they will learn from it and it will probably help them in some other way. And sure enough, a year later, uh, when Maternity Care Coalition called me about this merger that did eventually go through, they came not needing support for the exploratory phase because they had those skills in-house and they'd already been through that process and there was a pretty strong sense of what needed to happen there. And um, they really very quickly were able to make the assessment uh, of this other agency and working together, I think they've they've gone into what seems like a strong merger. Well, I, I think it also seems to me, Nadja, that it's also an illustration of what a journey it is and the steps along that journey and the questions you have to ask yourselves and be willing to ask without ego. Um, and uh, and I think that that's, those are the, the time, the ego, all of those things are the things that probably more stand in the way than, than they should. I wonder if um, I have two last questions, and then, then we we need uh, we need to run. But um, so advice: you're an organization, you're thinking about this. Short uh, and and not every city has the kind of resources that you have been able to extend to nonprofits in your area, and hopefully, you're starting a movement that will make those available more widely. Um, What's your couple of good juicy pieces of advice for people who are thinking they might want to roll down this road, whatever it may look like? I guess the first thing I would say is take a deep breath. (laughs) Uh, It is a, as you said, a long journey, and it's not one to take on lightly. So really take a deep breath, make sure you um, have good reasons for taking this on. Ideally, they are strategic reasons, not reasons of desperation. Um, Second, I would say make sure your house is in order, your own house, before you start dancing with uh, potential partners. So make sure there's a sense from your organization, your board, your leadership, what are the complementary assets you're seeking, whatever the form of the collaboration, and what are the non-negotiables. And third, uh, what I tell everyone as they're entering the due diligence phase, if we are about to give an exploratory grant, is, and even if we're not going to give a grant, the advice I give is make sure you put on a venture capitalist investor hat and ask yourselves, what are all the reasons we should not move forward with this potential deal? That allows for good due diligence and rigor, and it keeps you from falling in love with love. The transactional costs of going through these processes, the emotional challenges of going through these processes are too great to go into it with blinders on. So be as rigorous as you can on your own and get the help you need to really kick those tires. I love that question, right? What would be the challenges if we did this and really getting out in front of those? It's kind of when I, when I do strategy work, I often make people's eyes go big and wide when I say, okay, my first question of the day is if your organization was erased from the hard drive of society tomorrow, what gap would there be and who would fill it? Is it me or is there not a sufficient visibility for the power of collaboration and merger? I just, uh, there are times when I feel like people are looking, they're looking to see models of success. They're looking, they think it's hard, but they want to see that people are getting it right. And and I, I feel like I don't see enough of it, but am I just not looking in the right places or is it is it less visible than it should be? Well, my colleagues uh, in other cities and we at Sea Change are certainly trying to address this 
issue and trying to elevate the importance of this work and examples of this work. Uh, the Lodestar Foundation, whom I have spoken about, and I would actually refer to more as the Lone Star Foundation in this work nationally, as they've been the singular funder that has taken on the, the championing of this work for the last uh, better part of 20 years. Uh, we, we hope that we will find some additional national funders who, uh, who kind of get it in terms of the value of this work and can help spread it to other parts of the country. Uh, there are technical assistance providers who have good examples that they can elevate. Uh, La Piana Consulting has uh, been in this, this area, I think, longer than just about anybody. And they've got great cases, great resources, uh, a, real, a real treasure trove. Bridgespan has been doing some research in recent years, <clears throat> others as well. Uh, and I, I think we um, absolutely could use additional work um, and research still on the projects that we're all engaged in. And as we speak right now, actually the six cities, we're coming together and reviewing proposals this week uh, uh, from evaluation firms that are trying to develop a, a common design framework for evaluation that we can all use. We think this is an essential step in professionalizing the field and um, helping kind of proof of concept and demonstrating the value and the leverage of these investments. We also hope in the, in the coming year, uh, if all goes well, to develop a common application that we can each build from, reporting, uh, common reporting systems, a shared repository that would have templates and best practices that other communities can access and build upon. So, you know, if you haven't picked up on it, I think we're all very messianic about this work. We're all kind of fix-it people, and um, others might not find it so sexy. We think it is. Uh, we hope that others will find getting into the bowels of nonprofit business, uh, business models to be important work because ultimately um, our, our interest is to see that this work allows for greater uh, sustainability of promising work as well as greater communi community impact. Uh, and we also, I think, I just want to say, um, really still believe that the work of nonprofits matters. There's a lot of other talk and um, excitement around um, kind of new entrepreneurial models. Um, but I think there's a lot of really important work that nonprofits deliver. Uh, and we want to give tools to enlightened boards and leaders who are open to achieving their vital work without necessarily holding on to a fixed and rigid preconception of organizational boundaries and structures. And that's pretty courageous. And it's really a, an honor to work with side by side nonprofit leaders and boards who um, have this vision and the tenacity to see it through. So I, I want to just say a couple things in closing. First of all, um, I just believe that our sector and the funders in our sector are anxious. They're so anxious for people to play nicely in the sandbox, whatever that looks like, how often they are devoted to a particular sector and they hear people badmouth about some other organization in the sector or why are there so many organizations that do X, Y, and Z. And so I do think there's a hunger for it. And um, the second thing is I just really wanted to thank you because the resources which we will add to the blog post um, when we post it up at joangary.com. Uh, I'm sure there are many people listening that don't know about the resources you just identified so that they can begin to familiarize your, themselves with templates and successful models and things like that. So that, you know, great pre-reads for a board offsite. You know, if we were going to do something really radical, what would it look like and what would it be? And if you sent some of these things out, out around ahead of time, it would get people's, maybe to get their heads spinning, but it would also get their wheels moving as well. So um, I just really, 
really wanted to say in, clu- in closing that this has been a topic that's been very interesting to me, and it was, in fact, Lois Savage at the Lodestar, Lodestar or Lone Star Foundation that um, sent me your way, and I owe her a thank you note. I owe her a thank you note for all she's doing, and I owe her a thank you note for um, sending me to you. So I want to thank you very much for joining us today and for everything that you've shared about, I think, a topic that we all need to be thinking and talking more about. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, and thank you, Joan. It's been a privilege and an honor to have the chance to talk about this. And I can tell you are appreciative of uh, why this work is important. So I hope for all the listeners, we can help advance thinking and continue the effort to normalize this very, very important conversation. Thanks so much. Well, it'll be all of those things because our podcasts appear on iTunes and through all of those different things like Stitcher and other places. So you'll be able to find this podcast and all of my podcasts that way. You will also see them on my blog at joangary.com. That's with two R's. And if you subscribe to my blog, in addition to getting written blogs, you will also be notified when these podcasts are made available. Lastly, I just want to remind you that uh, we have a new adventure called the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which is an online membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. Amazingly enough, of the 1.5 million nonprofits in this country, nearly two-thirds of them have budgets of half a million dollars or less. And we have a robust and vibrant community uh, that avails itself of great content and remarkable colleagues and kindred spirits. We open registration twice a year. We'll be back in touch in October about our next registration period, but you can join our waitlist at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Until next time, as always, it is humbling and a privilege for me to be able to provide resources and services to all of you who do the hard work every day in making our society a more civil one. So thank you very much, and I hope you have a good day. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.